and welcome to Rap Party with Prime Video. I'm Rihanna Dillon, I'm a film critic, and I am delighted to be joined by my friend and nerd in residence, Michael Leader. Hi, Michael. Hi, Rihanna. That's the first time I've been referred to as friend as well as nerd in residence. This is the relationship that's been developing across the whole podcast. Exactly. I thought we're sort of nearing the end of series one of Rap Party, and I've decided to let you into my inner circle. As with every good series, there needs to be a relationship arc, and it might as well be ours. <laughs> but it's been such a pleasure talking with you, Rihanna, and talking with our guests every week, looking behind the scenes at the TV series and films we love, demystifying the process behind certain crafts we may not have known about before. I know, and this week I think is a really special one because it is definitely a craft that does not get as much recognition as it deserves, and we are going to be doing a deep dive into the craft and the art of Foley. So, Rihanna, the question I ask you every week, what do you think of when you hear Foley? I think of the film and also the theatre show Barbarian Sound Studio, because that Mm. is all about Foley. And that is a really great layman's guide into that world. It's all about giallo, like sort of recreating the sound of giallo, these old Italian horror films. And that includes a lot of smashing watermelons instead of somebody's head or you know like crunching (laughs) celery as like breaking bones things like that also I remember listening to a documentary about the British audio soap the archers and hearing all about how they have to be really specific in the kinds of water they pour like if there's boiling water they have to boil a kettle and pour boiling water they can't just use cold water and that always really stuck with me as all the kind of behind the scenes stuff that we don't ever hear about it's funny we don't hear about it but we do hear it all yes. the time don't we in the things we watch we of course the tradition and history of foley goes back before cinema really because it's live sound for theatre if you think about Mm. some of the ways that people will mimic the sound of thunder and lightning with these big metal sheets but of course then foley in cinema starts with sound cinema in the 1920s because microphones back then if you've seen singing in the rain of course course. this is well documented in that film where microphones could only pick up certain aspects of dialogue so they had to create the sound world around it and even though that's century ago now people still are employed as Foley artists to fill out the sound world of these films and TV shows we love. I always think back to a classic episode of the sitcom Frasier called Ham Radio. Again, we're getting into radio space here more than TV or film, but it's very similar where they do a live radio drama and they have the sheets, as I said, they have a tray full of pebbles for walking footsteps, they have a door to slam... Of course, another example of, it's a gag, it's a comedy skit, but Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the sound of horses, hooves and footsteps, coconuts. (laughs) Coconuts. So these are all sort of big, flashy, obvious sound effects. But of course, there's all sorts of sound effects that a Foley artist has to create that you perhaps don't realise weren't recorded on set with the actors. The sounds of footsteps, of course, as we've mentioned, Not just doors slamming or floorboards creaking in a horror movie way, but just the simple sounds of people moving about in spaces. Yeah, and brushing against things as well and just hearing all those little rustles that you would never, ever think would have to be made. I would always assume that would just be done on set. But just the sheer layers of sound that need to be picked up (laughs) by a Foley artist is mad. So it's amazing that we have our guest this week who can demystify this process, tell us all of the tips.
tips and tricks and realities of Foley artistry. So I am very excited that this week we get to talk to Foley artist Ruth Sullivan because her breadth of work is pretty incredible. She has worked on so many different kinds of shows and films. She's worked on James Bond. She's worked on Mamma Mia. She's worked on Black Mirror. And also something that I will just never get bored of talking about, Killing Eve. How on earth do you Foley a sex scene? I'm going to ask her. <laughs> there I was thinking that we were done with intimacy after the intimacy coordination <laughs> episode, Rihanna. Yeah, you're not but, you know, okay, you'll, you'll bring it up if you, if you can. <laughs> I can. If I possibly can, I will. But even within that huge landscape that we've just sketched out there, she also has done the foley for films like Peterloo, Mike Lee's 19th century historical epic, where you have to think about what does the 19th century sound like? Of course, lots of horses in that as well. So did she use coconuts yes. for the hooves? Big question. <laughs> <laughs> and something that Ruth has been working on recently, which has just dropped on Prime Video UK, is Truth Seekers, which I am very excited to talk about. Uh, co-created by Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, two bigger geeks you can't possibly find in <laughs> film and TV, right? It's so true. Like if you go back and listen to the Cornetto trilogy, and I know obviously Edgar Wright is kind of the driving force behind this as well. But if you really notice the sound design of that, you will get some really brilliant little nerdy gems out of mm -hmm. just picking up the sound. So I'm so intrigued to hear about this collaboration. And sound is so relevant to Truth Seekers. It's this horror comedy series with Nick Frost as a paranormal investigator. So you have a mixture of sci-fi and horror setups in each episode where, of course, the sound is important. Things that go bump in the night. But he also <laughs> has this piece of kit that he calls his ghost detection device, the Electra Spectre. When it first pops up and he turns it on, it sounds like a mixture of the lightsaber from Star Wars, the PKE meter from Ghostbusters. I really wonder if they had in their head a list of these are the ultimate sounds in film history that we want to reference yes. and play with here in Truth Seekers. So without any more dilly-dallying, let's get in to talking to Ruth Sullivan. Ruth Sullivan, welcome to The Rap Party. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. This is very exciting. I'm very excited. Ruth, to start with, could you please uh, let's sketch out the sonic territory here. So our listeners may have sat and watched the credits of a TV show or a film and they've seen the sound department credited. You have sound designers, sound editors, Foley artists, Foley engineers, all these credits. Could you maybe sketch out where all these credits lie and then where you lie in the mix? Well, in terms of credits, normally I'm right at the bottom of the list, <laughs> if I'm lucky. Wonderfully, I am actually included in the credits for Truth Seekers, which is really nice because often we do get missed out okay. of TV credits, which is a little bit disappointing mm -hmm. when you've told your mum to watch the credits really and things sad, like that. Yeah. yeah, But I guess in some respects, we're a little bit of a forgotten department, which right. is why we do get missed off the list. Our work comes at the very end of the editing process. We watch the programmes and we recreate the sounds in the studio, but we're very much a separate little unit usually, not even necessarily in the main post-production studio, often in a little offshoot room somewhere. And so within the sounds that we hear in a show, what would a Foley artist such as yourself be providing if we could listen out for the mm -hmm. work? Well, generally we approach a project assuming that none of the original sound is usable. Mm -hmm. 
which is not always the case, obviously, because mm-hmm. location sound can be really useful and well recorded. But we have to assume that it's unusable, partly because we don't know what the mixer is going to choose to use. And partly also because when a project is sold to another country, they will need to dub their language on. So we have to recreate every single sound so that then they can use the Foley to bolster and back up the different dialogue that they've Mm -hmm. recorded. And so when you are given this finished edited piece, Mm -hmm. do you then have notes that you're working from or then do you working it up based on what you can see? It's mostly based on what we can see, but sometimes there's communication with the sound editor Mm -hmm. or the mixer as to what they're trying to emphasise in Mm -hmm. the atmosphere. Well, something like Truth Seekers in particular, as you know, it's very spooky Mm -hmm. (laughs) at times. So it's whether you want to make a very claustrophobic sound design with the Foley or how realistic do you want it to be? And so we'll get information like that from the mixer or the sound editor. Mm -hmm. How far in advance do you get to start on a project? Do you have a a script from the off before they've even started? Is it right at the very end of a project when everything's been done? Yes, it's really at the end of everything. So often I'll go into a studio and I don't even know what I'm going to be working on that day. Oh, really? And then if I'm lucky, I get to watch a bit and then we start work. So how do you know what to prepare? You know, if you're working on something spooky like Truth Seekers, do you have everything already there at your disposal? A Foley studio would normally have shelves and cupboards full of stuff. That's the polite way of uh, (laughs) describing it. Again, if I'm lucky, somebody will have told me the sort of programme that we're working on and then I can bring things in because I've also got a fair amount of stuff in my flat. (laughs) But also, if you're working on a project for a few days, you can get a sense of what it is you need and then you can go and rummage around and bring stuff in. But yeah, we don't really get the script beforehand. We're not Mm. involved in the pre-production or production. It's really very much at the end, although still important, I need to emphasise. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm so intrigued by this magic cupboard of noises. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us, from the latest project that you've worked on, what do you see when you walk into this room with all these shelves full of stuff? What is in there that we might recognise? Oh, gosh. Well, um, somebody walking into a studio will be quite surprised at the stuff that they see, but I see it all as sort of magic, I suppose. <laughs> Box of delights. You might get a whole shelf full of broken crockery or hopefully not too broken because we need to use it. Plates, glasses, different glasses sound different so you have to have lots of different ones. Lots of paper. My father's old papers get used a lot because he kept everything from the 60s Uh and paper sounds different these days. I was just going to ask. Yeah, if you're working on a period piece you don't want to use A4. Mm -hmm. It's got a completely different quality to parchment Mm -hmm. for example or something like that. There's a book in one of the episodes of Truth Seekers. Is this the book that's made of skin? It's made of skin. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. So vile. It when is you, quite vile. Yeah. So did you have one of those lying around in the in the well, cupboard? Funnily enough. <laughs> no. But we have a prop in the studio that has been there for years. I believe it was from a Peter Greenaway film, but it's a beautiful old book that somebody in props would have spent hours creating with beautiful textured paper and absolutely gorgeous and so I would have used that in combination with a few other things I think not skin I might add thank goodness for that that's a wonderful piece of trivia right there the connection between Peter Greenaway and truth seekers yeah yeah a connection you wouldn't really think how much of the job is using almost the exact object you're trying to make the sound of and how much is being a bit more creative like with that example yes so famously 
in my world. <laughs> I was asked how somebody might foley a typewriter, and I said, I would use a typewriter. <laughs> um, so, yes, for the most obvious things, cups of tea, glasses, things like that, we would use absolutely the exact same object. But when you're creating something that doesn't really exist, like the electrospector, mm-hmm. We needed to create something that had a bit of movement to it. I think it was something like a video camera and a Walkman. Right. And, you know, just lots of things that just kind of created this creak and rattle that mm. that had body to it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we didn't have an electrospector in the studio. So <laughs> we had to create something that might sound like you might imagine it would sound right. like. Right. And that's the, the central ghost detector that Nick Cross's character Indeed, in Truth Seeker yeah. like, powers up in every episode. Yeah. Did you have notes to work from for that? Because I can imagine just approaching Truth Seekers as a fan of. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost work as such geeks. They're so nerdy. They're so nerdy. I can imagine them saying, oh, this is like the Ghostbusters proton pack or the Sonic (laughs) Screwdriver from Doctor Who. Or were you given free reign to come up with the sounds yourself there? We were pretty much given free reign, although I know that there was communication Mm. with the sound editor. We also were really lucky on that show because we had the effects that had been created by the sound editor to listen to so we could see where the foley might slot in and Mm. what he was going for in terms of the sound design so we knew it was going to be quite over the top with the creaks and all the gizmos and everything Mm -hmm. so what we were trying to do is create something incredibly realistic that could bed into that so yeah we did have free reign in some respects and of course when you watch the program for us we could tell the direction they wanted to go in you know it's so vibrant and it's style that I think it was fairly obvious to us how we should approach it. Mm -hmm. There's a scene in episode two, I think, right at the beginning, where we go back to World War II. If you're doing something like that, which is obviously a mixture of past and present, Mm -hmm. do you have to go completely on what materials would have been around in World War II in the 40s? Or are you allowed sort of free reign with that? If you're like, well, this machine would have been made out of all this kind of stuff. Yeah. How far does your research go in that respect? Is there any? Does that worry you? Oh, it really worries me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like everything. I get teased about this, but I like everything to be authentic. Right. I wouldn't use a modern sounding phone if it's meant to be a Bakelite style. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am a pedant and I think that really (laughs) works in my line of work. I love the detail. Mm. I want the detail to be right. And I think it really paints a picture, a sound picture. I often refer to Stranger Things, which I thought was fantastic in terms of the sound design and the foley. Mm -hmm. And it just created this atmosphere where you, the audience, you were totally drawn in. The detail made the atmosphere. And people might not realise that that's foley, Mm. but I did. But that's what (laughs) drew the audience in. That's partly why it was so enjoyable. It was a really major part of the overall show. That makes me really happy to just to hear about like the detail and the love that goes into making something like Truth Seekers or whatever. Yeah. And how does that attention to detail manifest when it is a full-on period film like Peterloo? What sort of research rabbit holes are you going down to get the right footsteps or hooves? Gosh, yes. Well, it's really important to get the clothing right oh. and the sounds of the dresses. There are quite extremes in quality of material from the poor people 
to them, slightly richer people mm-hmm. and the politicians and things. So you want to get literally the fabric right. Mm. So you might have silks and things. The dresses might need to have multi-layers, petticoats and things. I did a show called Jamestown and they really wanted to hear the boning oh, in the, the dresses. The yeah, oh, yeah. So what we often do first is a moves track. But this moves track was so detailed. The collars and the ruffles around the neck had to have all the different layers. And I just remember standing there carrying this huge amount of clothing, trying to get the sounds of these people walking around. It was actually exhausting. (laughs) But it sounded good. So there we go. Do you watch it then? Do you play it on a loop while you're designing it? Are you recording it while you're watching it, like dubbing in a way? So generally speaking, having mentioned the moves track, we would watch a scene and record the moves track first. So you're literally following all the movements of the actors on screen. And then we'd go back and record the footsteps. Right. So you go character by character and then you do the backgrounds. That can be a little bit painstaking when you've got crowds and crowds of people and there might only be one or two of you in the studio. Yeah. So that's just layered footsteps. That's you right. You just have to go back and do it over and over yeah. and over again. <gasps> yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness. How many layers do you think that you might do on average? Well, if it's a, a scene with two people, then you would reduce the number of effects mm-hmm. and tracks. And I'm going back to Truth Seekers here because the very first scene in the first episode looks really simple. It's Nick Frost. He's sitting. He stands. He walks around a bit. He picks up a magazine. He's thumbing through the magazine. He's pressing buttons but there are so many layers just in that one scene the creaking of the chair the fact that the chair is made of metal and leather I think and you know you've got to have all of those layers again it's about painting that picture that sound picture when I first started there weren't that many tracks to work on it wasn't such a digital world as it is now so it was much more important to get the sync Right. Usually there would be two artists and often you would record footsteps for two characters at once Mm -hmm. and do the moves at the same time. Right. So it was a choreography more. And also when you're doing the sound effects, you would have two of you at a table with the props and you'd be focusing on the screen in front of you and then each would be in charge of moving the different props to make the sound of the one thing that was happening on screen. Nowadays, we can recreate everything in more detail and with multi-tracks, so it's much more layered, I suppose, than it used to be. Also, I'm sure if, if you have a perfectionist streak, I bet you can be there for, <laughs> forever, <laughs> tweaking. And another, can we have another layer of footsteps here? Yes, yes. Although I do have a lazy side too. Okay. <laughs> They're never going to hear that. Why do we need to do that? <laughs> so how many pairs of shoes are in the cupboard then? Do you, do you have to have different types of shoes for different walking or do you try and make do with as few pairs as possible? Well... I've entered into this job with a hatred of changing my shoes, which is kind of ironic um, (laughs) because I have to do it many, many times during the day. But I have a suitcase full of shoes, different trainers, because actually trainers don't sound as soft as you think they Mm. might when you're literally hitting your foot against the floor with a microphone next to it. I've got different types of high heels. I've got some hard leather-soled shoes and I've got some under my bed as well. (laughs) 
Okay. If you're walking, if you're doing these footsteps, and I know that you're credited as a Foley walker on the Bond film. The world is not enough. The world is not enough. enough. So if you're walking in that specifically, do you walk on the spot? Because surely marching on the spot sounds very different from walking across a room. So are you walking across a room? No, we have areas set out in the studio with different services. So there'd be an area with flagstones perhaps or concrete and then an area with gravel, different types of floorboards, hollow, you see, or not so hollow. And we walk on the spot. Right, okay. That has changed slightly, I think, because in the olden days we had bigger studios and you could walk along a surface and you would have a boom operator Mm. who could move the mic with you. Nowadays, it's usually fixed. So you have to walk on the spot and you have to keep the footsteps consistent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I was called a Foley Walker on that film, I think, because that's the American way of referring to Foley artists. Interesting. So we didn't just do the walking, we did everything. And that was a, a fabulous film to work on for me because I learnt so much I learnt how to do the sound of skiing. Because you've got to imagine, when they were filming this incredible skiing scene, very James Bond, Mm. they're filming from a helicopter. Mm -hmm. So they don't use microphones. Mm. They can't record any sound. So we literally had to make the sound of the skiing. And we had a big piece of plastic on the ground. And we put dishwasher salt on the plastic and then got a broom. And you sweep it round to create the swishing sounds. So that's one element. And I learned how to make a bomb, but maybe maybe I won't go into that. So did you have to do sort of explosive, spectacular sounds for that, as well as the sort of everyday sounds of engines and walking? Yeah, that's a good question. We used to always do explosions. <laughs> there was a technique where you could put a plastic bag over the microphone and the engineer would have to do something very clever with the EQ and turn the treble down I think and bass up and you put the plastic bag over the microphone and then there's air within the bag and then you could just tap the bag really gently and the air on the microphone would create this massive boom it was fantastic (laughs) and then if you move the plastic around it's like the crackling the after effects of the bomb which is so much fun I used to love doing explosions (laughs) in a very safe way (laughs) That's what I love. People talk about how expensive it is to make these films nowadays. $200 million, some of them, but there you go. Just one explosion, (laughs) plastic bag and a microphone. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to use Foley as a verb here. Mm -hmm. Um, I noticed that you worked on Killing Eve, Mm. and there is so much in that series because there are deaths, there are murders, there's sex. How do you Foley a sex scene? Oh, (laughs) basically is what I'm trying to get to. Okay, I wasn't quite expecting that. Um, Well, I guess it would depend. If they're in a bed, Mm -hmm. then we might do the sound of the sheets and the covers. Mm -hmm. We would also do the sound of the springs on the bed, Mm -hmm. maybe the headboard, Mm -hmm. you know, that classic banging of the headboard. (laughs) If there's skin sounds, then we would have to actually make the sounds of the skin. Kissing is kissing your hand. So you just revert to being like a teenager in your bedroom, (laughs) kissing your hand. Did you do that then? No, 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 that's (laughs) not a thing, is it? (laughs) It was all those Judy Bloom books that I used to read, honestly. (laughs) And what about a murder scene? Mm -hmm. If you're having a knife going through somebody's body, Mm -hmm. what do you use for that sound? Well, it sounds awful, but I do love doing a murder scene. (laughs) Um, (laughs) One of the best things about being a Foley artist is that you're allowed to make a mess. 
inside. <laughs> you know, you can stab melons. There you go. Melons. Cabbages are really good for murder scenes. Oranges. Celery is very good for bone breaking. And you can really literally get your hands dirty. It's fantastic. <laughs> Without being told off. <laughs> Did Barbarian Sound Studio see an uplift in people wanting to work in Foley? Because that is some of the most explicit Foley work that people might have seen on screen or on stage if you saw the play. Yes. Now, that's interesting. It's definitely something that people have heard of. I've noticed in the last few years, more people know what Foley is than before. Right. And people often get in touch to see if they can shadow me, how they can become a Foley artist and where do you train? And there's no answer to that, really, because there aren't many of us. You can't do a college course and then become a Foley artist. It's not that simple. Mm -hmm. Not that anything's that simple. There's no clear path to becoming a Foley artist. Mm -hmm. I think all of us fell into it by accident, really. In that case, how did you fall into it by accident? What was oh, your path? well, there we go, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> Well, I was looking for dancing work mm. and there was an advert in the stage newspaper that said dancers wanted for film work. And it turns out that there was this small agency and they wanted to train up dancers to join the agency because the two women who ran the agency were ex-dancers themselves. So I had this very bizarre phone call where somebody was trying to explain to me what Foley was which I'd never heard of. <laughs> and then equally bizarre situation where I was invited to somebody's house and asked to try out walking in time with somebody on the screen. And I did, and I think it was OK, and they took me under their wing, really. So it's very slow training. <laughs> I would have maybe one or two sessions, maybe every other month or something. And then I went into a studio and watched... And it was quite overwhelming, actually. And then eventually I did half a day on Soldier Soldier. That was your first job? That was my first job at Shepperton Studios. <laughs> Tell us about that. What was that like? Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. This massive studio. I didn't know anybody. And it's dark. They turn the lights down when you're about to record and there's this massive cinema screen in front of you and someone said, right, you need to jump out of that aeroplane like that character's doing. And I don't think I could even see who it was that I was meant to be doing and I just had to go for it. And What did was... you have to do to mimic jumping out of an aeroplane? Well, the aeroplane was on the ground. I should perhaps have explained oh, right. that. So they were literally just <laughs> jumping out of the aeroplane. <laughs> So, I just yeah, had visions sorry. of you just like falling <laughs> yeah. from the ceiling of Shepton Studios. wasn't quite that exciting, but yeah, that was my first job. That's really fascinating, as you say, unconventional ways into this, because yeah. maybe people would have the presumption that it grows out of sound, where really, from what you're describing, it could just as much be coming out of dance, where you're going along with mm -hmm. a choreography of something that's already in front of you, or theatre, where you are trying to make something out of nothing in the studio. It was like black box theatre type approach. It's really yes. fascinating. Yeah, that's right. And my background is in theatre. Mm -hmm. And I'm really lucky that in the last few years I've been able to combine the foley with the theatre work. Right. So now I actually do quite a lot of live Foley on stage, which is actually more terrifying than that first day and then Soldier Soldier. Whenever I think about live Foley, I go for the immediate cliche of like the thunder sheet, you uh -huh. know, somebody shaking it on the side. That's a very stereotypical idea mm -hmm. of what sound is like at the theatre. So enlighten me, what's it really like <laughs> behind the scenes? Well, the production that I've been working on regularly 
irregularly, regularly over the last <laughs> several years is a production of The Magic Flute. And I do actually have a thunder sheet. Do you? <laughs> yes. It's not such a cliche. No. Oh, brilliant. But we use it in a slightly different way. So it has a contact mic on it. And then I have a violin bow and I scrape the violin bow down the side of the thunder sheet. And then I have a metal poker, which I use to sort of screech on the metal. And it creates this incredible atmospheric sound. And, you know, opera theatres have these huge sound systems as well. So I really enjoy that. That's my favourite thing. That's so cool. But yeah, different productions demand different things, of course. We discussed earlier... Well, stylized but still grounded scenes in a thriller like Killing Eve, where you have the sex scenes, of course, but also murder scenes. So I'm a bit of a horror geek, mm-hmm. and so my mind immediately goes to films like 20 Days Later or Sweeney Todd, the Tim Burton version, where it's much more full-throated yes. scenes of horror. So can you talk us through some of the sounds for something like 28 Days Later? I suppose eating human flesh might be a sound. For yes, that. yes, I suppose it might be. Did you eat human it? flesh yes. for that? As I said, authenticity, but that... I don't always use the (laughs) exact right uh, props for that. No, I mean, I think there was a lot of melons involved, you know. I also did a show called Dead Set. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, yeah. The the Big Brother zombie film. The Charlie Brooker series. Wasn't it amazing? Yes. So I think things like that, you watch in the first instance and you're filled with horror and you're looking away and you can't look at the screen. And then a few takes later, you're like, ah, oh, can I just get that bit of entrail that's coming out there? And can I get the teeth on the heart? I mean, you know, you really, really get into it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell everyone that. Oh, no, we appreciate that attention to detail. So yeah. would you ever use meat? Like meat has quite a specific sound, doesn't it? I imagine mm. steak. You kind of, you mentioned melons. Do melons sound like meat if you're kind of um, hand in a cow or something? I don't know. Yeah, I think probably oranges might be useful there because oh. you've got a bit of texture. Uh-huh. Okay. There is a story of somebody who wanted to make the sound of a dead body being thrown onto the ground and insisted on bringing some side of animal, thinking that that would make the right sound. And it just sounded like a splat, like a very, very light sound. It didn't sound heavy. (laughs) And that's where Foley comes in, because actually we would never use a piece of meat. But we would probably use some material and do what we call a body fall. And you actually sort of jump and use the material at the same time. It's very difficult to describe. (laughs) And also you could use your hands, you can use stuff that sounds heavy because what you want to hear is the heaviness of the body. But yes, using real meat doesn't always make the sound that you might want to hear. I interviewed a guy once who did some of the sound effects on Doctor Who and he was eating a croissant over his coffee and it dropped into his coffee and it made this squelching noise and he was like, oh my God, this would be perfect for this particular alien. Yes. Have you had any happy accidents like that? Oh gosh, yes. That definitely does happen. And you know, when you're buying shoes from a charity shop, you have to ask them if you can walk out on the pavement to see what they sound like because... Trying them on in a shop doesn't work. And, of course, you do get some funny looks and things like that, you know, picking stuff up off the shelves and trying to listen to what they sound like. Why would you do that? <laughs> yeah. So far, we've been talking about sounds that have generally been created by one-use items, like shoes are for shoes. Is there a Swiss Army knife equivalent in the cupboard that can be used for multiple noises? What's the most versatile thing you've got? Oh, my goodness. OK. I've got, for example, an old Game Boy which I never use for the beeps. I just use for the handling Mm. sounds. Or if somebody picks up 
a remote control or and needs a button. And also I've used it for um, gun rattles, but oh. in combination with something else, like a metal staple guns. There are props that you can see in a studio and you go, oh, brilliant, I know I'm safe now because that's, that's <laughs> over there and I can, that's my go-to prop if I need it, yeah. I feel like my dad's garage would be perfect <laughs> for a family artist. Don't throw anything away. <laughs> Don't tell do. him that. <laughs> I almost feel like it's the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade or something where you go into a studio and you look at, what is the most valuable thing in this room? And everyone goes to like all these microphones and no, it's actually the staple. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true, though. It's true. Is there a certain sound that is a real pain to capture? Mm, high heels. I mean, can, literally can a pain, be, I'm sure. Yeah. You can't really wear actual high heels to create the sound of high heels because you can't walk on the spot in high heels. Flip-flops, really difficult to do if you're not moving. Mm-hmm. Things like that. It's interesting, footsteps of the hold-ups. Yeah. Because they're in everything without us realising, mm. but they're still the one things that they can be tricky. I think also in a sort of broader sense, working on a project that you don't like can oh, be tricky. Right. If you're not enjoying the substance of the programme or if it's just a bit tedious, the same effects happening. Mm-hmm. I actually love a detective series, but Sometimes they can be quite dull to work on mm-hmm. because you've got the same cops in the same detective incident room and then you've got the same props because they've got their notebooks and they've got their bits and pieces. Whereas something like Killing Eve, something like Truth Seekers, you, you never know where they're going to go and what props you're going to need. And those are always the more exciting ones. If someone's watching Truth Seekers, is there a sound specifically that you're really proud of that we should all listen out for in... A particular episode. There's a, a chain and a wedding ring, mm-hmm. Nick Frost's wedding ring, in the van. So we had to do the sound of that. We had to do the sound of the rattles in the van. I mean, the, the van sounds quite full of stuff, <laughs> which is quite good for Foley artists. So things like that. And we in the studio, we have this very squeaky car seat, which was exactly right <laughs> for getting into the van. It's been really nice to re-watch the episodes and see what has been used. And the Foley is really key i think which is gratifying so cool <laughs> it's so nerdy and so cool it's so nerdy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a film that we've talked about a lot in this series is well pretty much all of stanley kubrick's back catalogue but especially eyes wide shut mm-hmm. and that was one of your earliest yes. films that you worked on can you tell us anything about doing foley for that famous famous film with nicole kim and tom cruise yes okay well Just to set the scene, we worked on it, I think, one or perhaps two weeks after Kubrick had died. So there was an atmosphere of tension, as you might imagine, just in post-production generally. We had to sign uh, NDA forms. We weren't allowed to talk about it, the film that should not be named. um, (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, they really wanted it to be good. They wanted the Foley to be really detailed. I mean, I just remember being faced with the party scene, basically, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in all the cloaks and things and just having to do the swishing of the material. It was perhaps not my happiest of recording sessions, but I'm also very proud to have worked on it. It was quite an experience, that's for sure. Because that was filmed in the UK, but supposed to be set in New York. Yeah. Does that change anything about your work? Because we're looking at something that isn't really Mm. New York. So you have to make it sound like New York. That's all part of us being duped, yes, I suppose. Yes, and that's very interesting. I mean, because so much of it would have been on set, I suppose, and certainly on locations in and around London. And I do remember there's a scene towards the end in a toy shop, and it's actually Hamlet. 
It was meant to be in New York. <laughs> and for us, it was really obvious. That it was <laughs> when you're a Foley artist, you see the film, whatever it is, in so much detail because you're re-recording mm. the scenes all the time, different layers. So you tend to look out for things. You notice things. Mm-hmm. And we always say that directors and editors should come into the Foley studio <laughs> because we're always like, oh, yeah, well, we've seen that one before. Oh, they had a handbag last time. <laughs> you know, just silly things like that. But yeah, we notice detail, continuity. Mm. That's actually a really unique privilege. Everyone we've spoken to, they tend to be quite early in the process. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're getting scripts, they're getting rough cuts. They don't really often see the final finished mm-hmm. cut until it's on telly or in the cinema. So you're getting that privileged, in-depth look at the project. Have directors ever come into the studio? It's rare. Mm-hmm. It does happen sometimes. I did meet Peter Mullen once, which was oh, fantastic. Uh, thrilling. Normally we're just left to get on with it, but we went to a screening for series two of Killing Eve. They showed the first two episodes, which was very exciting because I got to meet Fiona Shaw, who's a real hero of mine. (laughs) She's amazing. Oh, isn't she incredible? And of course, we're sitting in this screening room watching and we know what's happening. We've seen it all before many times, but the actors who are there are so thrilled to see their work because they don't know what it looks like. So yeah, you're right, we are privileged Mm -hmm. and it is really exciting to be able to tell people, oh, I'm working on this amazing series, you'll have to look out for it. Mm -hmm. When you finally then do watch something in your spare time, are you able to watch something without thinking of all the little details in the sound? Yeah, not really. (laughs) It's unfortunate actually, it has a massive effect. In fact, I'm very bad at going to the cinema, but I certainly don't go after a day's work because I can't Mm -hmm. switch off. Mm -hmm. But also it does make me appreciate things Mm -hmm. like Killing Eve, like Stranger Things, because I know what's gone into making that film sound so good. I did go and see A Star Is Born a few years ago, and I think I only thought about Foley twice. Wow. that film. I came out and I thought, well, I know I enjoyed it, but that absolutely <laughs> means I enjoyed it. I was taken off into another world. When you say you think about Foley across watching a film, mm. what is it that's sticking out to you when it's wrong or when it's not quite right? Or you think, mm. oh, I, maybe that could inspire me to do something differently in my work? Or what are you picking up on? All of those things. Yeah. I have a real issue with people running on fake grass because oh. I can really hear it and mm. it really annoys me. Sometimes I think, oh, that's an interesting prop. I wonder why they used that. I would use this. <laughs> or, oh, I wish I'd done it like that. Right, you know, okay. yeah, there's all of that going on. I'm going to listen out for some fake grass now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really obvious when you hear it. <laughs> You'll never be able to unhear it. <laughs> that's the trouble. <laughs> So, Ruth, we're creating this big fictional rap party. Of course, all our guests are invited. We want to give our guests the opportunity to do what we do, which is talk to somebody about their craft, about their career. Who do you want to talk to at this big fictional rap party? Okay. Am I allowed to say a few people? Oh, go ahead. One of my favourite choreographers is a woman called Twyla Tharp. And you might have seen the film of Hair. So my favourite show, A, and also her choreography, Fantastic. So, yeah, that combination. I'd love to talk to her. Actually, I'd, I think I'd just be tongue tied. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. The director of Jesus Christ Superstar, Norman Jewson. Oh, okay, yeah. Amazing film. Again, incredible choreography. And probably I ought to say Jack Foley. Who's Jack Foley? What? Foley is named after a person? Yes. <gasps> How have we got to do a whole interview without realising this? <laughs> Tell us all about Jack Foley, please. Oh, that's hilarious. 
Um, I did not know this. Yeah, Jack Foley was around when silent films became talkies. And I believe I'm right in saying that he was a stuntman. So he was an actor and stuntman on films. And when they started to realise that they couldn't record all the sound effects at the same time as the dialogue on set, he would go into a studio, which then became the Foley room, Foley's room, and re-record some of the sounds. I think they also only had one track to record on. And then as things developed, there would maybe be three tracks to record on. But yeah, he's credited as being the first man to layer sound on film. My goodness, (laughs) he'd be the guest of honour. This is fascinating. Yeah, I can't believe we didn't know that. That's embarrassing. (laughs) No, I'm quite pleased you didn't know that. That's great. (laughs) I feel like I've learnt so much in this interview and it was just such a pleasure to talk to you. Ruth Sullivan, thank you for joining us at the wrap party. Thank you. I've really enjoyed myself. Thanks a lot. Thank you to Ruth Sullivan for talking with us today. What an incredibly interesting chat that was. And as the Nerd in Residence, I should shout out that the Game Boy being used as Foley is one other laurel to add to that incredibly influential and impactful (laughs) console's life. (laughs) Uh, I knew you were going to pick up. Also, I love how much deep diving that Ruth does just to get as close as possible to the exact materials used in any given film like using old paper instead of just regular a4 just something i would never think about but of course it seems so obvious now and also i got to ask about portfolio sex scene i enjoyed that a lot and of course truth seekers is available on prime video from today we only got to watch the first couple of episodes before chatting with ruth but the whole series is available to watch as of today october 30th And as always, you can head to our show notes where you can find links to explore Ruth's work and lots more as well. I'm really glad we've got a Foley artist at the wrap party, Michael. Why is that, Rihanna? You know, I've just always found them to be really sound people. Oh, dear. (laughs) It was such a good relationship that we had building going on here. (laughs) We now have become mortal enemies over that one joke. Rap Party with Prime Video is a Little Dot Studios production for Prime Video. The show is hosted by Rihanna Dillon and Michael Leader. It is produced by Annie Hughes, Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel, with additional research from Nicole Davis. Our original music is by Axel Cacoutier. We're edited by Content is Queen. And our artwork is by Sandra Boucher and Sam Mason. If you've enjoyed the show, you can subscribe to us on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you at the party.